I'm Steve. Joining me this week, you can't get rid of him. It's Adam Myros. Uh, I need to like go to Ireland or some shit. Yeah. Get me some time away from all this garbage. Well, this is, I mean, this is really great because, you know, uh, perfect societal uh, just analog here because Jack, with his opulent wealth and his worldly travels, he gets to take time off from the podcast. And you, the hardworking blue collar man, what do you have to do every week? You got to clock in at Optimism Vaccine and, and do this podcast. So uh, I, I guess you just need to, to get wealthy, Myros. Why haven't you done that yet? Uh, you know, maybe once I'm done with school, uh, we'll get there eventually. I'll be like 70 and finally um, be financially stable. We'll be good I'm, go. I'm betting on heat death before financial stability for any of us. Also joining us, uh, he's back. It's been, it's been too long, man. I, Sean Glennis is here. Uh, what do you what do you mean i've been on every episode as you guys i you guys just can never hear me uh i think it's like a skype thing i need to figure out oh that makes sense yeah what i, I think oh, i thought he just confused the wiseman podcast with optimism vaccine <laughs> very similar to well he doesn't know i'm actually on every episode of the wiseman podcast too if you guys if you if you crank up your volume while you're listening to the wiseman podcast you can hear me just <sighs> just real real faintly Real faintly. Well, Steve heard the casting call for a wise man, and he figured he'd have. Yeah, that's, in, uh, that's what can I say? Uh, no, this. I'm glad Sean's back though, because some would argue that with Sean's extended absence from Optimism Vaccine, we've gotten even trashier, and <laughs> we we need Sean's presence to kind of you know pump the brakes a little bit, bring us back to the the real world with real renowned directors and, and films and and that's what he's doing for us today uh but still still fitting in the mold of of everything that makes us you know what we are so sean what the fuck are we talking about today uh we're talking about claude chabrol one of the um the pioneers of the french new wave um he uh he made like the first you know Everybody has a different definition of what the first French New Wave film is, but his his film uh, Les Beaux Serge uh, was uh, like kind of, was pretty much the first French New Wave film, and then that he he made using his uh, wife's money, and then he kind of like <laughs> u- used the earnings of that to uh, finance a lot of the other guys that are more well known um their first movies like breathless um but uh yeah he was a writer for kahir du cinema and um uh he is uh like a lot of those guys was a an adorer of uh hitchcock and and that definitely comes through in, in his movies which is kind of what you're implying uh with uh by saying that the stuff we're talking about today still kind of fits in with what we talk about. It's very, very much genre film is, is what he does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. 
So really, really what we've learned from Sean's intro there is that one of us just needs to marry into wealth and we'll be good to go. Yeah, that's, that could really solve this whole this whole problem we're, we're discussing. Well, it's my understanding, too, that this is a real awesome film flex, by the way. Any aspiring filmmakers out there, one, marry into wealth. Two, the way that he financed his first film, if I'm not mistaken, not only did he use his wife's money, but I'm pretty sure like his wife's dad passed away and they got an inheritance and then he used that to finance the film. So. Uh, yeah, that's good. You know. Yeah, not to uh, you know do a crossover here, but uh, uh, one Frederick Wiseman also married into to money and uh, used that to to make his film. So uh, it's a tried and true, tried and true method. Yeah, I mean, ladies, if you're out there, Adam Myros, he's got a he's got a French bulldog that's super cute. He's got a podcast. What else do you want from a man? Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, Romare, or sorry, uh, Chabrol, <laughs> wrong guy. uh, well, it, it, Chabrol and Romare, I think are two, two of the French new wave guys that like people usually like students usually don't get to until later. Um, uh, and Varda too, but I feel like people get to Varda before these two usually, um, but they, they don't have like the, the necessarily like playfulness that you know the Truffaut and Godards had um and Varda as well but um uh and Rivette I guess people don't really get to to Rivette until later but um Chabral you know his, his movies are very uh psychological and you know they're they're like psychological studies as we'll talk about um and Romare is you know just makes movies about adults in relationships but um the two of them wrote uh one of the first books on on Hitchcock um and uh so they're they're very much like uh I mean Truffaut wrote one as well but they they were very much like students of Hitchcock um and uh we could talk about ways with each of these three films that uh we see sort of like ways that uh Chabral, um both was influenced by him, but kind of did it his way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it, it's kind of interesting, too, because it, like you said, th there's definitely there's a lot of Hitchcock in, in what Chabrol does. And I think one of his, you know, people called him the French Hitchcock and all this shit. And it's it's definitely there. But it, it's kind of wild to me that people don't talk about his films more like we're talking about three uh, random movies from different decades of his career one from the 90s one from or two from the 70s and you know he had been making movies since what the 1950s so yeah, yeah. Uh, like he and, made like and, 60 some movies exactly exactly this huge huge body of work but the number of bangers this guy has put out is just staggering like it, just a lot of stone cold classics incredible stuff uh, probably a lot more consistent than some of the bigger names in the French New Wave, but I think the reason why he gets cut out of those conversations is kind of twofold. Uh, one is, you know, the the mythos around the French New Wave and what it represented and what those filmmakers were doing. A lot of it was about like basically blowing up and reinventing cinema and and the idea of what it can be. And Chabrol is he's much more in the mold of a say like a mainstream filmmaker which isn't to say that uh, he's not doing things that a lot of his contemporaries weren't doing and a lot of filmmakers still don't do today and then the other aspect of that is maybe it's like the 
you know, criterion collection brain poisoning, that sort of art house canon that's been established. And the guy has made, you know, 65 films across five decades or whatever. And a lot of them, they're, they're not, they don't have these, you know, prestigious criterion releases or uh, big box sets or anything like that. I think the first like couple of comprehensive sets that have really come out is just in the last, I don't know, six months, Arrow has put out a couple of box sets of his work. Is that right? Yeah, they put out a couple of box sets and then like Cohen put out like a three uh, film collection, but like that's not really as accessible. You know, it's not as big of a deal as like Arrow putting out box sets. Um, Hopefully Arrow continues to do them. Um, Yeah, yeah, because they they also look uh, beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I would say like yeah. In addition to what what can make something like slip out of the it it, it kind of fits between more populist cinema of the seventies and the true like art house stuff. I feel like mm-hmm. that is the sort of thing that can happen when a when a guy is really sort of prolific. Is it it lessens the impact yeah. in the minds of certain people when there's there's not like this mystique of oh there's these six perfect films or something. It's like yeah, this guy was a, he was just doing work, man. And another thing being that it's genre and that always yeah. has an, a hill to climb with a, like vast critical acceptance. Sure. Yeah. And, 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 oh, go ahead. And, sorry. And, well, I've only seen like a half dozen now, but um, my understanding is that he kind of is doing like for the most part this is slightly reductive but like riffs on the same thing like over and over again um or like various riffs on various things that he's done uh throughout these movies you know obviously them all being basically in this in one genre it's kind of like uh that comes with the territory but um so that sort of like lack of uh distinguishing like you know cosmetically speaking um you know, it just makes them all kind of like blur together. And I mean, it makes it really fun for me now going through them where I can go like, Ooh, I like, I've, I've heard nobody talk about this movie. I'm excited to watch it and see like, uh, I'm, I'm excited to watch them like sort of wholesale and find all of these like unheralded films that, uh, you know, probably have a lot to them, but because they, you know, they aren't like distinguished in some big way. They just kind of get lost in the fold. Mm-hmm. You know, not, not to jump the gun by any stretch, because we are going to discuss them in order, but it, it is kind of interesting that Steve mentioned that they, they might not feel as experimental as sort of the most known films of the French new wave. And, and it's kind of interesting that of the three that we watched, I would say the, the one that feels most like a French new wave film and, and is very sort of like experimental and antithetical to what you're expecting is it's the nineties. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yep. for sure. Yeah, exactly. And it's also like, uh, it, it's, yeah, we can talk about too how it resembles, uh, or ways that it is like similar and different from like Haneke at that time uh yeah yeah if the first thing that came to mind obviously it's it's very hard to, to draw parallels there yeah mm-hmm. yeah i i think <laughs> I, obviously the hitchcock stuff is is pretty apparent uh haneke's a good touch point and then even i don't know i, I got a little bit of uh, paul verhoven just just like thinking of l as, mm-hmm. as kind of a touch point as well 
Uh, but yeah, we'll, we'll get into all this stuff. So why don't we just kind of jump into the movies here? And genuinely, if you're listening to this right now, uh, go on his IMDb page and just throw a fucking dart and you're going to hit something that's probably interesting. Uh, I mean, shit. Yeah, didn't he, yeah for sure. I, I mean, it, it, if you go through his, because this is also, he's a guy who, and this might tie into the French New Wave stuff too and why he isn't, you know, on that Godard level with, with some uh, film fans. But he, this was not a filmmaker who was ever afraid to make something that he wasn't necessarily in love with uh, from a material standpoint, so he could pay some fucking bills. That that's not to say he didn't make great shit that you know he was a hired hand for. But I, I'm pretty sure he did a, like a remake of Doctor Mabuse with uh, the guy mm-hmm. from Weekend at Bernie's. I think he did like an Alice in Wonderland thing. So if you go through his filmography, there's there's clear films that were you know passion projects for him, and there's also stuff where he was probably looking for a paycheck so he could you know. Uh, I don't know, pay off his French villa or something. But that doesn't mean that they're not all interesting or of a certain degree of quality. So really, just start anywhere. But we're starting with The Butcher, which is incredible because (laughs) I think it's a really great jumping off point. Uh, When we think of contemporary thrillers, at least for me, uh, maybe there's there's like a, a tendency to conflate thriller with mystery. And then when I think of European thriller films in the 1970s, I immediately go to Italian Giallo and I think of all the twists and the turns and the gore. And The Butcher, despite being called The Butcher, is none of those things. Mm-hmm. Everything yeah, is laid out. I, it, From it, the jump, you know exactly weird. what's happening. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually started with the next one, but immediately I was like, oh, this is this is very shallow adjacent like mm-hmm. feeling like it, it, I, right out the gate. I was like, oh, I was thinking of like Sergio Martino or something. And I'm like, oh, that's what this is going to be. Right. It's even got sort of a a goblin like bass pluck at the beginning where you're like, oh, th- this is this is going to be adjacent to that sort of thing. And then it, it just strips all of it away it's like no there's there's no mystery there's nothing it's just this is an examination of psychology and class and blah 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 and it's like it, it it's like starts from the same point of origin as a really sort of sleazy italian stuff and then it goes in a very well, French it's, direction. it's kind of like <laughs> the inverse of like what bava was doing uh around mm-hmm. the same time too where he's just like all cosmetics uh and this is just like none of it <laughs> it's all like this like subtle mise-en-scene uh and um psychology and like subjectivity um all the stuff that you don't get from from baba mm-hmm. right yeah it, it, this is like you could see the alternate reality version of the butcher that is a shallow and it's like it doesn't look anything like this. This movie does not revel in the same sorts of things that, that the Italians were doing at the time. Exactly. It it kind of raises this question of what, it, you know, what does it mean to be grisly and grim, but not gory necessarily? Mm-hmm. And there, there's almost no gore at all in this film. Uh, at the very end, there's, there's a stabbing that isn't, you know, particularly gory. And there's one other scene. Blood sandwich. Think, yeah. Blood sandwich. Uh, which <laughs> it sounds a lot worse when you when you say it like that. But with with any other filmmaker, especially an Italian filmmaker at this time, you would have seen, you know, a completely nude woman with her throat cut, you know, gushing blood everywhere. And that's cool. Don't get me wrong. I love that shit. But here, 
all we get is we get this school teacher. She's taking her class on a hike. They sit down to have lunch. And there's a hand from a recently killed woman dangling over this cliff. And a single drop of blood drips onto the sandwich that this little girl is eating. And that's all it takes. So it's like, how much mileage very, does he get out of one drop of blood as opposed to a gallon? Yeah, and they're very pointedly discussing, like, Cro-Magnon Man. It's just, everything is very deliberate. <laughs> and the, these are intricate yeah. films. Yeah, they're walking through the, the old, like, uh, the, the, the old caves. Um, there's, a, there's a book on Gibraltar, like, the first book, and it's still, like, one of the only books uh, by... Uh, Robin Wood and one other writer. Um, but in the, the chapter on The Butcher, they talk about it as um, a riff on Beauty and the Beast, which which kind of unlocked it for me. Oh, um, yeah. I didn't even think about that. Shit. <laughs> yeah, you have this teacher who's like, um, she has given up romance. Mm. Uh, I think she had like a bad experience or two or something like that. And it's just kind of like, Love isn't for me, and she so she dedicates her life to her students. Um, and then you have this butcher who's just like obsessed uh, and seduced by her, and basically like needs her to be his, or else he will do bad things. Basically, mm -hmm. yeah. I that that actually that makes a lot of sense. I'm glad someone on this podcast reads. That helps. <laughs> <laughs> It, it's just it's such an interesting look at like impulse in modernity and i i i like it quite a lot it's not my favorite of these but it's it's still quite excellent and yeah it, it's just doing a lot of different things with this sort of murder mystery like th this is probably the only uh well of these two of the era this is certainly a lot more of of uh, a mystery element to it. Like it has a, the lighter very direct, like sort of lighter misdirection where you're like, Oh yeah, I guess he's not the killer, but really just give it like an ounce of thought. It's like the guy's literally just walking around all day going like, well, when I was in the war, I saw a bastard split in two and boy, I like to look at their guts and boy, it's like the guy is, he's unhinged at every turn. Yeah. I, don't know. I, I think the most unhinged moment is, you know, because the, uh, the, the butcher here, the titular butcher, uh, he's in addition to butchering women, he's also butchering animals in a butcher shop and he comes to the school where the teacher works and instead of bringing her a bouquet of flowers, he brings her like a, a, a leg of lamb wrapped like a bouquet of flowers and then she sniffs it like it's a bouquet of flowers and that was <laughs> fucked up so i i for a moment there i was like maybe she's doing all these killings because who sniffs a raw hunk of lamb uh like it's a bouquet of roses and again look, look at the sleazy italian the butcher oh. that that is not lamb baby oh, that's exactly <laughs> and that was my thought i I've, I've been completely brain poisoned by the italians <laughs> And I'm just thinking like, oh, he's, he's, you know, chopping people up and he's feeding the, the French townspeople <laughs> and he was fucked up by the war and all this stuff. It's like, no, he's, it's, it's not that complicated. I, I just, it's almost like because the movie lays everything out in a way where he's, he's almost challenging the audience. He's saying, you know, like you, you know who this killer is, you know how this is playing out. And then it becomes a game of kind of like self doubt based on all the shit that I've already seen. And he, he's so well-versed in, in thrillers and this kind of mystery that 
of course he's able to do that. He knows exactly the way that we're, you know, thinking about this as we're consuming it. And it's, and, it's brilliant. And like, um, also with it being all sort of like laid out and they're not really being like a real mystery, like mm -hmm. a lot of the films like pleasure is how, and, and this seems to be routine in, in his films from what I've seen, uh, is how closely he's observing like the milieu of the place that he's in. And so this is this village and you just get such a good feeling for like the people who live there. And obviously there is like, we talked about these, like these archaic cave landscapes and how that is like thematically tied to this like beastly figure. Um, but yeah, a lot of it is just like sort of settling into this like well-observed location. Yeah. Yeah. I'll go. Yeah, one of the big things that like stuck out to me with his writing is that it's seldom like he I I believe he's he, I know he's the writer on this. I think he's the writer on all of the films, but um I they're adaptations, but nonetheless it's uh it's to me that there's no like clear delineation between there's so much ambiguity in this characterization. It does feel it feels really cyclical, like expertly intelligent psychology for these characters where it's not just like this happened and so that's why they act this right, way. Right. or or yeah what they're doing is evil this guy's the villain blah 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 it's like no th it, this is such a rich complex humanity to these characters which it, which is definitely something that hitchcock was really good at too right like making you think about why like it wasn't necessarily about like why the characters committed this crime or something like that but it, it was more of like what do they get out of it and what are the feelings that they have after they do it um mm -hmm. or why are they thinking about doing it all that type of stuff is here it's just like kind of presented in in a new way um but uh i think that that like nowhere is that better uh shown than in the end of the butcher which i i think it's just like incredible like really took it up a notch for me um when you know uh i mean i think steve already mentioned it but like like we said there's not really a huge mystery but um this guy you know he he knows he can't have her so he just kills himself and 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 her just like realizing through all just like facial acting and, and like the mise-en-scene um that she's just like alone and how much she got out of her relationship with this this murderer um is like really touching and just and pretty profound in in ways that are just like built on ambiguity mm -hmm. yeah it sets it up uh, again like it's gonna be this whole like oh now that she's found out he's the killer he's coming for her and then it's like no <laughs> that's not fucking what's happening at all he, he just shows up and she's never in any danger because he's a complex character he doesn't have any compulsion to kill her he's in love with her and yeah he he just he breaks and kills himself but it, this whole that entire sequence the driving to the hospital in the hospital and then her like reminiscing over this lake and and just kind of reflecting on their relationship and and what her life is it's just astonishing stuff like yeah. that for me this like the like I said, I started with the second film we're going to discuss, and this one 
didn't quite measure up, but that's because I fucking loved that that the next film we'll, well discuss. But th when this, I I don't know. Maybe I changed my tune a bit, and this ending, like the last fifteen minutes of this film, yeah, are yeah. just masterful stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, it's funny that you, you were talking about the the um this like lead up to uh your expectation of her once you find out it's him. Like the next movie, just before Nightfall, is like that's the whole movie, right? It's just that yeah. over and over again. Um, but like elongated and it's, it's really just like fun to watch. Oh, for sure. And I guess, I mean, if, if you guys are fine, we can jump right into just before nightfall. Uh, this was released, what, like a year after the butcher? A year because... after there was one film in between them called, uh, the breach or la rupture. Um, uh, our boy likes working. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> imagine making imagine making two films this good within a year yeah sorry i just can't stop making masterpieces it's it's horrible um yeah and genuinely just before nightball holy shit uh what are the 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 themes and i don't know if you curated it this way sean or if you just picked three movies that happen to align this way but uh our boy claude is he's very interested in kind of class specifically and and social mm -hmm. order and this is great because it kind of explores the whole the concept of of personal guilt versus social order and a man's desire to confess to something but because of the the place that he's in in society people are just like ah, we don't really want to fuck things up too much so let's just kind of just gotta not worry about it so much and it's <laughs> it's fucking great because you're watching this guy who is is literally like to the point of complete self-destruction, like on the verge of a complete mental breakdown and just, you know, throwing himself off a fucking cliff. And everyone around him is like, no, it's OK that you did a horrible thing. <laughs> so, well, yeah, it's just yeah, before it's nightfall. <laughs> yeah. It, it, and it opens in a in a very like sort of like sleazy looking way, like. Mm -hmm. It has this like beautiful hue to the whole thing. It's like blue, and there's this like mid-century uh, design to um, most of the locations. Um, but yeah, it opens uh, just like very sleazy, just like this naked woman that gets murdered, and it turns out to be his best friend's wife, um, mm -hmm. and he ends up being the guy that cares about it more than anyone. Yeah, and and this is another movie too where. Again, the Italian version of this film, I think, would be very different. And even if you read, if, if you read the description on IMDb or Letterboxd, it's like, when a sexy S&M session goes wrong, a man who's having an affair with his best friend's wife is overwhelmed with guilt. And it's like, well, that, it, there's a little bit more to it than that. Uh, but yeah, basically, he strangles his mistress, who just happens to be his best friend's wife. and it spends the entire movie just trying to get himself punished for this more or less. And it's, it's great too, because it's contrasted with a financial crime because he's uh, I think he, he like owns like an advertising agency or something. And one of his employees who's been with him for 10 years, steals a bunch of money and runs off with some young girl and they end up catching him. But, uh, there's so much energy put to like catching this guy. And everyone's just like, Oh, this guy's a real fucking asshole. He stole all this money because it's just like, yeah, uh, we don't want crimes that, that disrupt 
the wealth of the wealthy, essentially. But if you just strangle some hussy who your best friend didn't seem to have the best of relationships with, well, we're, we're going to kind of overlook that one. Yeah. Yeah, it's wild. Like, this, again, and these are both Italian co-productions, we should say, too. So they have that, like, feel. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just kind of remarkable how this opens, and you're like, oh, I know what I'm watching. I've seen this. <laughs> it's like, oh, man strangling a naked woman. Yeah. And then here come the police. It's time for a police investigation because mm-hmm. we're watching Italian horror. Let's see this long investigation where this guy becomes unhinged and goes around strangling women. I can't wait till he picks up his black gloves. I know. But- it's a, the, all of his movies just start off trying to convince me I'm watching a French riff on a Sergio Martino movie. And it never plays out that way. I don't. <laughs> yeah, this is it's immediately like you're expecting a, a mystery like, oh, he probably didn't actually kill her. There was something else at play here. The, the, there's some, uh, you're always kind of expecting like I'm expecting a turn like this is genre cinema. And this is not this is like practically fucking like Bergman or something. Mm-hmm. This is one of the most <laughs> yeah. like deeply uh, like intelligent psychological films you'll ever see yeah what if sergio martino made a movie where uh yeah there's there's no gore no blood and it really is just a middle-aged man crying and confessing his crimes <laughs> yeah but like in a really good way obviously <laughs> yeah and he makes like he makes no effort to like cover up anything it's just like all this stuff like again you're the whole time you're going when's he gonna slip up how are they gonna catch him and he's just like Here's my fingerprints. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. It's like, Please throw me in prison. I didn't really think about it until now. Uh, you guys talking about sort of like the um, the Jalo version or whatever, but that that reminded me of um, Hitchcock's Frenzy, which came out the mm-hmm. next year in '72. I don't know if either of you have seen it, but it's like uh, uh, this serial killer. Um, it's British, uh, I believe, and. Um, this serial killer is just like strangling women and has this like, uh, you know, he's like guilty, but trying not to get caught. And, uh, but like not really doing the best job of not getting caught type of thing. But it's like, uh, Hitchcock's like sleaziest movie for sure. Like there's like actual nudity in it. Um, and it seems like contemporaneous with like, it seems like he was watching, Jolly or something. It's very weird mm-hmm. for a Hitchcock movie, but um, uh, just made me think of that because uh, it, it it has all of these things that that sort of uh, um, just before Nightfall doesn't actually get into um, because mm-hmm. it just stops being sleazy. It just goes in like incredibly like inside of this guy's head, um, but it that. To kind of like go back to what I was saying in the intro, it's interesting to think about um, the way that uh, like Romare or keep saying that Chabrol <laughs> and and Hitchcock's uh, like attempts at subjectivity like differ because there there seems to be like in Hitchcock like you're like thinking about like Vertigo or Rear Window where you're like invited into somebody's subjectivity. Mm. um to be like sort of seduced by what they're seduced by and um there seems to be like this this like intimate uh subjectivity with Chabral but like a distance where you're where you're like scrutinizing the actual person more 
Um, does that make sense with, with either of your guys' experience? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, sure. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's God, this, this movie does such a fucking amazing job of it too, because, uh, the other thing is, is I mean, we talked about earlier, the way that Chabrol kind of makes his characters so complex. They have these different layers to him, even though he's overwhelmed by guilt, he's still sort of not giving the full picture of the story. And even like, you know, he starts off and he confesses to his wife. He's like, well, I, I had an affair with this, with the, you know, the woman who died, but it was over. And then he's like, well, actually I, it, it wasn't over when she died. And actually I'm the one who killed her. Whoopsie poopsie. And, and all these things. And, and even when he, he says that he's come completely clean and he's told her everything. You think back to the opening scene where as an audience, we, we kind of like watch, we watch him commit this crime. And even his, it, like the way that he explains it to his wife doesn't feel entirely aligned with, with what we saw as an audience. So yeah, it's, I, I really feel like you're, you're kind of taking a step outside of him and kind of like, yeah, you're, you're, you're judging him from about six feet away. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it's interesting. Like the character is almost probing himself in the same way that yeah. Chabrol is encouraging us mm-hmm. to probe him. Like he, he doesn't know what his motivations were, you know, like he's going, was this an accident? Was it convenience? Was, why did I do this? Can I like, am I a monster essentially? And there's, you can see this guy rotting essentially <laughs> like in every scene he's, he's fucking dying inside. <laughs> and you know, he just, it is it's fascinating it's a wonderful performance and just a brilliant script i i don't know i i this is a really standout film one of the better like psychological thrillers i've i've seen in many many years probably ever (laughs) a lot of it also is like the fun and the interesting like setting of this modern house which his like best friend built Mm -hmm. or designed Mm -hmm. for him um and there's just like a lot of touches and, and you get to know like the uh just the ge- like you you just get to know the layout of it um very well and there's like this curtain that they have like they have like this glass wall um in their bedroom that like overlooks the like family room and and uh it, it just like uh is used to at, at one point like show this this like uh impenetrable like distance between him and his wife um Mm-hmm. and uh but but it's but it's interesting because it's not like when you know when he tells her about it she's not like <laughs> she's not like uh heartbroken that he cheated on her and also murdered her uh he's just she's just kind of <laughs> like you know i'm kind of upset but i i think i can get over it mm-hmm. um but the distance it's... is more about like yeah, just the ways that he can't uh be a part of this family anymore because he's so racked right yeah and it is obviously it it doesn't even read that way in the moment to me like when i'm watching this movie i'm not going this is a film about class but when you look at it kind of in the macro of his career this is a film about class right right but when you're watching it it's like you know his friend describes uh him as like the most intellectually honest person he's ever met and you're like yeah, that's what this movie is. It's looking at murder from this like baldly intellectually honest perspective and going, what is 
the implication of this? What is a just punishment? What, what even is like, you know, criminal justice essentially? It's, it's very interesting stuff. It reminds, but, you know. <laughs> it, it's funny. Uh, this movie and the next one both reminded me of Woody Allen movies. Um, Diff, diff, well, actually, somewhat is kind of the same. Ones, Sean, the but. mistress was like forty, <laughs> not not fifteen. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, like uh, crimes and misdemeanors, yeah. and that like whole whole thread through his work about like, um, what is like a murder if, or like, what is a murder if you can kind of, uh, if nobody knows it was you and mm-hmm. you can not be bothered by it. Um, or, you know, it's, it's much more about like the internal like differences versus the material differences and, and, um, how easy it is for the material differences to not actually mean anything. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. And this is, it is, it's intellectualizes murder and in a way that is reserved exclusively for the rich. And that is what makes it such an interesting indictment of sort of class politics. But I, I can't say enough positive about this one, but uh, I could gush about it all day, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I don't know where you find this movie legally, but uh, track it down, steal it, go rob a French person, uh, whatever you got to do. <laughs> it's, it's worth tracking down for sure. Um, all right. Well, I, I mean, should, should we move on to uh, our, our final film here? We're jumping to the 90s. Yeah, the real oddball. All the, the yeah, the, <laughs> the most new wavy of them all, La Ceremonie. Uh, and also, God, we we talk about how class kind of is is a, a unifying thread throughout these three movies, but it, it's most apparent here because hey, it's the story of a of a, of a maid in a in a wealthy household. <laughs> well, I guess that's kind of Godard esque, right? He's he just once he gets old, he's like, fuck it. I'm not going to like disguise what no. I'm talking about at all. Oh uh, yeah. I mean, I, I'm just calling it, uh, the socialism film film socialism. <laughs> is that, is that all right? Is that... Sure. Sure. Godard. Go ahead, man. Just do your thing. Uh, it, 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 it is interesting though. Uh, because of how the, uh, rich are treated in this movie is, uh, it, it's a, it's a, it's a complex portrayal. For sure. Absolutely. You know, we were talking about movies this reminded us of uh, before we jumped into it. And there's a big dog out there that this one really uh, reminded me of. And that would be uh, recent Best Picture winner Parasite. Oh, Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, um, it's uh, definitely... uh, I I like this more than that. Um, uh, The the Woody Allen movie I was thinking of is Matchpoint for sure. Um, I mean, there are, mm-hmm. there are obvious differences, but, um, this like play with, with class and, uh, shotguns. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's, yeah, there's this wealthy, uh, family that has this like mansion out in, out in the countryside and they get this made, um, and, uh, there's this like fun tension where you're like slowly finding out that uh she cannot read she is illiterate which the the book that this is based off of um is uh called the illiterate or the illiterates um so i think that in the book as i understand it um it's not so much of like a tension 
there. But, I mean, because it's called the illiterate. Whereas here, you're kind of just like finding out like what's wrong with her, or like why is she like so? Uh, she she's just kind of like resilient or not resilient, but like hesitant um, and can't figure out things that they're asking her to do. And then you're just like you you slowly piece it together that she can't read or write. Mm -hmm. um and Mm -hmm. so she's like trying to the like game of the the film is like her trying to keep this job while not uh letting them find out that she's illiterate so you know she like um and and she also like they try to get her to go to the optometrist and get glasses and she like fakes it and gets fake glasses and she has this friend uh that she in town that is uh, a member of the proletariat played by uh, isabel huper um, who like helps her with stuff um, or she finds other just sort of like uh, canny ways to uh, have like shopping lists read to her. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, there's this tension of like, once you find that out and then the tension of like, can she keep it from this family? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and the way it kind of plays out too is it's, it's great because and maybe this is just me as an American, but, I couldn't tell if she was being just excessively French or kind of uh, not necessarily a dick, but kind of short with the people that were, you know, employing her because they would be like, oh, yeah, do you like your your room that you're staying in? And she's just like, I don't know. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and but but this is like a common thread where they'll constantly be like, you know, oh, here is like a very basic thing. And instead of doing the typical like, you know, servant thing of like, oh, yes, it's lovely. She's just like, yeah, it's fine. And then you see her when she's trying to hide this, uh, the, the fact that she can't read or write. And you're like, oh, well, she's she's being sent to get glasses. And then she just fucks off and just walks around and, you know, goes around town and stuff. And it's it's almost like they're daring you like, oh, is she really just like, you know, fucking around and trying to masquer- masquerade as this, you know, really good employee? Or is there something else going on here? And then it's quickly revealed that, yeah, she, she can't read or write. But, but. there's a feeling that she's like she she's OK with that or or like she. Oh, yeah. 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 There's there's no there's no it's not like a source of deep, deep anxiety. She's like, oh, no, what am I going to like every single time these rich people ask her to do something? She's like, yeah, fucking whatever. <laughs> It's just like this really French dismissal. It's it's kind of wonderful. I love it. Yeah, she's a difficult character to get a handle on, but that's uh, that's kind of the the nature of this film. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of it you'll spend being like, what, what? Like I I found this intensely difficult to access like early on. Uh it it wins you over big time by the end. But uh, I uh, a for whatever reason I don't know. This was one of those anxiety movies it's it's the least thrillery of the bunch <laughs> but it manages to be like the most very anxious. anxiety promo- provo- provoking easy for me to say uh and yeah it's it's just kind of at times incredibly tense even though it's not, not really a thriller the well kind of what i was referring to before and part of like the anxiety to it or like the tension again is that like the family is not like outwardly bad. Like they're, they're like decent people. You could like the, the father, the patriarch is like, um, condescending, like he becomes condescending and he like, uh, doesn't really care for her, but 
his reasons for not caring for her are like very legitimate because it's like all stuff that is a result of like her not being able to read or write. So she can't help that much and she's not that great of a cook. And so it's, it's like, Oh yeah, I guess if you were wealthy and you had a maid and they sucked, you probably wouldn't want that maid. Um, (laughs) But like the, the, the matriarch is like, really trying to like help her and give her a shot and they like give her more money than she used to earn. Um, and they're trying, you know, to, you know, get her to have glasses and stuff. So they're, they're, they're not viewed in this like easy, like, uh, bad way. Um, but yet that's, we still understand why the, the maid and Isabel who pairs character, don't like them right like the it's mm-hmm. just that inherent class difference and that um that uh resentment class resentment um and that's also paired with uh we haven't mentioned yet both of these uh women have uh <laughs> mysterious pasts that that yeah. include uh deaths well yeah that's the thing that i, I suppose procs parasite for me is that your protagonists are not <laughs> admirable, really. <laughs> like you're, you're kind of conditioned throughout the film to be like, oh, these are the, you know, the sort of insert uh, lower class characters. I'm rooting for this, uh, this maid, and I don't know. She, especially Isabel, who Paris character is kind of <laughs> reprehensible. Like she just like. <laughs> gossips about everyone steals their things hey, and she's helping probably she's helping, killed she's her charity child. <laughs> yeah probably just like burned her child to death it's like yeah i mean it's left ambiguous as to whether there's intent well, there but we've all been seems there. like there's probably intent there <laughs> who among us does not want to you know light a child on fire come on yeah yeah and then what what the the maid was it her dad yeah, died in a fire, I believe. Yeah, so, I mean, it's ambiguous, but um, apparent, uh, according to Chabral, they, like, in, like, their, their, like, discussions of what they thought of their each, of each characters did, um, they thought that the maid did it on purpose, and Hubert didn't, mm-hmm. didn't, but, I mean, it's all, it, it's, it's all ambiguous, and, and that's the, the richness of it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, it, it is very like you, there's no one that you're rooting for by the end of this film. You're just kind of like observing it, and that is intentional. I mean, because it becomes less about character, and more about class politics, which is yeah, it's what the film's going for. And there, there's yeah. like there, she's watching a bunch of TV, and it's very interesting. Like I wasn't sure at first, like if she's just like uh really taken with. Or, or she's like trying to learn something through watching TV, but it turns out she's just kind of like shirking a lot of her duties and just like watching like dumb TV. Um, and which I encourage, by the way, if you go watch daytime television instead of doing your shitty fucking job, do it. Sure. <laughs> um, and it's funny because that's like contrasted with, uh, I think, like, I want to say the only time we see the family watching TV is when they're watching like this uh, um, opera. Uh, that is like turned mm-hmm. up so loud that they can't hear anything in the house. <laughs> While they're getting funny games. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I mean, 
it's it's interesting too that this is kind of like a late period work for him because as you mentioned before, Myros, this this doesn't seem like this is not what Godard was doing during this period or any of the other remaining French New Wave guys. It's it's on a completely different level. And in some ways it's it's more accessible, but it still feels really, really biting and, and innovative, but maybe not in the traditional over-the-top formal experimentation that we're used to from from the French New Wave. But uh shit. Three really good movies. Sean, are, yeah, are you making us a, a podcast that watches legitimate films again? What's going on here? I mean, hey, if you want to, if you want to do the toe thing and and do three, three Chabral episodes, I'll I'll come back because we mean, we just... might have to honestly because you said this, I was like, yeah, sure, whatever, and then I started watching this, I'm like, fuck, I want to watch good movies again. So yeah, we we might have to drop a couple more of these because uh, Lord knows the man has the filmography to support it. So and all of them <laughs> yeah. that I've watched are just like so fascinating, like like they're just so well plotted. Um, oh, mm. I, I was gonna say though about um, ceremony um, because Myros, you were talking about him being a scriptwriter, and this he co-wrote with a uh, with a psychoanalyst, um, mm-hmm. and uh, apparently. I can't find the name. I don't have that name on hand. But um uh Carolyn Elyachev. Um and apparently there's like some uh psychoanalytic um like concept of uh I can't remember the term, but like basically two people that uh separately are uh not like they have potential to do like harm but they wouldn't do it unless they were together um that this kind of like builds on because we have these like two women that uh you get the sense you know you have these ambiguous pasts that involve danger um and uh so you're not really sure like how much of that like we said is like uh you know was done on purpose and done on accident um but when they get together is really like sort of when shit actually goes down and the, and they actually are, are like, you know, capable of, of doing uh danger. But um I think that that comes from him having this screenwriter that is, that was a, a, a psychoanalyst. Mm-hmm. See, I thought here you were going to dive in because I, I asked off air, why the hell is this movie called The Ceremony? Oh, and I was well, <laughs> kept I was waiting for a too. ceremony. <laughs> um, so, and I don't have the clip next to me, but I, um, but uh, it apparently there's a couple translations of like what a ceremony means in different languages. And, um, it basically is referencing like dead man walking. Um, but a particular, like in French, um, like a ritual of like somebody who, uh, is, uh, caught, but not dead yet. And like the French would like be like taking off their like the French like cops would be like taking off their shoes because it was always done in like the at dawn and like not wanting to wake anybody. And uh, which I think we kind of get at the end of this film, like in ambiguously mm-hmm. um, when, uh, you know, it takes place at dawn and, and uh, we can kind of guess the fate of one of the characters. No. Uh, and then for some reason the entire third act's been recorded on a book yeah yeah they were this is a very interesting recording step. The, the opera yeah yeah um i 
I, this is such a strange movie at times, but like, cause it's it, like, it doesn't read, I mean, there is a tension, but it's a tension of like prestige cinema, not genre cinema. And, and then it just erupts into this very like violent sort of, obviously Haneke uh, feels uh, appropriate, but also something like daisies feels oh yeah, yeah uh, for really sure. resonant to the third mm-hmm. act. Um, and it just, it comes out of the blue. It's this. One thing I would say before we entirely move on is um, some hallmarks of his style that I was taking note of. And the way that one in particular is applied here, I found interesting because it almost felt like a mistake. But this is not a guy who's making mistakes um, is he uses a lot of uh, zooms. Obviously, he's he, there's a lot more zooms in these films than you'll you'll see traditionally and what you're used to, I would say. But the other one is the dissolve. And this film has some strange goddamn dissolves. <laughs> like, there's one where it, it basically is just focused on uh, Sophie the maid, and it's like, it, it, like I said, it almost feels like an editing mistake. Like, it dissolves from her standing there to standing, you know, almost like a jump cut. But it's, it's a dissolve into, like, almost mm-hmm. a jump cut. It's a very strange technique, and I'm like, it, it, it makes you wonder exactly what the hell he's going for there. And I'd have to, uh, again, it's a film that, that merits multiple viewings, but it, it, that's, uh, he's got some very signature stylistic flourishes that, uh, you could associate with them quite quickly. Mm-hmm. But, uh, that, that really stuck out to me in this one. There was another with a car very early in the film too, where it's just, it, it dissolves yeah. from a driving scene to the exact same car a little further, uh, to the right of the frame. And you're like, why? Why did he do right. What is this meant? <laughs> hmm. Well, no, it's, I, I'm, might, uh, I, I might have to pick out a few more that, that um, hopefully show us uh, more of, I guess, uh, uh, his perspective and in, in other experimentation. I mean, I watched one um, that is from 62. That was like his third or fourth or something like that. And that... Um, some of that early stuff is filled with uh, visual experimentation, not not on the like it's one that you watch and you go, oh, OK, I get like this is French New Wave stuff. Um, mm-hmm. uh, like I think his first first couple films were kind of like building off of like neorealism and then like went quickly into mm-hmm. like a, a, a style. And then by the time the butcher comes, he's sort of like nested into um a more like subtle presentation but uh but yeah maybe we'll be back with some some more uh i think we will i'm officially saying it right now this is this is part one of i don't know how many we're gonna get to but uh we're we're gonna watch more of our buddy claude uh and i mean eventually we have to get to this dr mabuse weekend at bernie's mashup at at the very least like that's important to me so uh myros what are you putting over this week uh, as per usual right now, I'm really not watching much, but oh, uh, such a fucking I did, gamer. <laughs> I, well, I did start finally playing Borderlands three and it is, uh, you want to see some unintelligent writing, uh, give that a shot. Um, <laughs> but I, despite the fact that it is, is abhorrently written and, uh, quite confounding and it feels very dated, it is... A shitload of fun. So uh, I could put that over. Why not? It's a it's a hell of a lot of. You just want some some brain 
relaxation, just shut it down, mm-hmm. uh, pop on Borderlands 3, and uh, you will get exactly what you want. There you go. Sean, what are you putting over this week? I am putting over a uh, 1997 film, Gridlocked, starring Tupac Shakur and Tim Roth. My two faves. By uh, Vondi Curtis Hall. Um, this was one that I watched on the recommendation of a friend. Um, and uh, it's, uh, I mean, I was very familiar with, with Gridlocked, like a, just a title in a uh, you know VHS box I saw around for years growing up. Um, and, uh, you know, it kind of gives off from the cover like this, you know, gritty urban, uh, dr- like crime drama, um, something like Dead Presidents or like uh, um, Trespass. Trespass? Is that what it's called? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, but uh, it's this movie that takes place in Detroit that was entirely shot in L.A. about these two heroin uh, uh, addicts who are trying desperately to get into rehab. And the entire movie is just them hitting like uh, various walls of the bureaucratic system of like the healthcare system and like them not being able to get access to, to um, healthcare or rehab or getting like an appointment and like, you know, being like, you have to come back in a couple of weeks. And this like back and forth of like, we are trying to give up this drug, but it's a drug that you have to do every day or else you're going <laughs> to feel like shit. Like, um, and, uh, it's, it's kind of, I mean, it's funny, but it, it has like this inherent drama to it. Um, but it, it has like a levity to it. That is definitely not what you find in a lot of like nineties drug dramas. Um, like, the director is like very interested in, in like showing sort of like the, the, the comedy of the day-to-day experience of this bureaucratic system. But, um, Tupac is awesome in it. Um, and, uh, it's a nice, uh, breezy little film. Well, shit. I'm gonna have to check. I've never even heard of that before. So I guess I'm not that familiar with the cinema of Tupac other than nothing but trouble, which he has a small cameo. in. I think that was his first, uh, his first film role. I want to say, uh, he did Juice and yeah. Poetic Justice. Um, I think Juice was 92, though. Uh, but, well, if you're going to look it up, it's gridlocked, K apostrophe D. Are you familiar with this, Maros? I've not seen it, no. Okay. I will say I don't think Trespass is the movie you're thinking of, despite my affirmation, because that's the movie with uh, Nick Cage, where he has a bunch of money in his walls and gets robbed. Yeah. That Steve did a video on a hundred years ago. <laughs> yeah, that's a different movie. Is it, uh, also, yeah. I do want to confirm, though, that I was right about one thing, and that's uh, Nothing But Trouble was Tupac Shakur's film debut in 1991. So, nice. Uh, Wait, is that the movie with Chris Tucker? Uh, no, it's the movie with a with a penis nose and uh, oh that yes 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 <laughs> yeah is he just he's in the movie as member of digital underground yeah yeah he's he's hanging out with the Humpty guy and Dan yeah. Aykroyd has a dick for a nose and, right which right. by the way is the superior dick nose performance a lot of people gravitate towards uh, Deuce Bigelow European Gigolo the sequel to Deuce Bigelow male Gigolo. Not the best penis nose performance. It's all about Ackroyd and nothing but trouble. So just want to clear the air on that. 
we're having a classy episode, Steve. We already fucking talked about nothing but trouble once this year. <laughs> just leave it in the past. You, you, think, you think we're going to get through a whole episode without a single dick joke? You're completely wrong, my friend. <laughs> I can find a way to slip it in. Uh, well, and let's talk about what I'm going to put over this week. I'm putting over the rehearsal. It's the new Nathan Fielder show. I think it's got two episodes out now, and uh, it's it's goddamn amazing. If you like Nathan, but you Nathan for you, but you're like, hey, I wish Nathan for you was more like uh, Charlie Kaufman's Synecdoche, New York. Uh, well, here it is. Uh, it's <laughs> completely insane. It's it's the same thing where he's trying to solve people's problems and help them out, but he does this by uh, literally like mapping out their life and rehearsing very specific scenarios over and over and over again, which includes building set replicas of, of places. And it's, uh, it's completely deranged, uh, especially because the first guy that he helps out in the first episode uh, ends up telling him that he's a horrible human being. And that's just how the episode ends. So highly recommend it. <laughs> Check it out. It's a, yeah, it's a real 10 out of 10 experience. It. I never watched Finding Francis, uh, so I, I gotta uh, watch that first. You gotta catch up, man. Uh, Nathan Fielder's taking it to a whole different level right now. Like, the fact that, basically, this is, it's, it's the same as the work he was doing before, but HBO just gave him a lot of money, mm -hmm. which he is specifically squandering on dumb bullshit, which is exactly what you should do when HBO gives you money. Highly, highly recommended. So, uh, definitely check that out. Also, if you're listening to this podcast right now, there's there's a link in the description. How fortuitous for you. You can click that link and you can give us money. And who wouldn't want to give us money? Uh, we've got we got a couple of new patrons. I'm sending out uh, sending out a package tomorrow. Another another patron, another package, because if you subscribe to our Patreon at any level, I'm going to send you a movie from my personal collection. What are you going to get? You don't fucking know. It could be a VHS tape. It could be a DVD. It could be a Blu-ray. At the very least, you want to subscribe to our Patreon because for $3, you're going to get a stranger mailing you a movie. And maybe that's worthwhile to you. That sounds like a, a decent deal, right? Yeah, so, yeah. And what are they good for $5? Well, for $5, uh, you, get, you get even more because you get your name right out on the air. How would you like to be among the Optimism Vaccine faithful who becomes famous? And, and who are those famous people currently, Myros? Uh, we have Paula, we have CWW, Dustin, Evan, and Ryan. Oh. And, and for $25, uh, Paula uh, is the whole reason that we still do the put-over section, even though it, it uh, gives me anxiety every week. That's because, right, that's uh, right. <laughs> that was a patron request. Patron request. Because once you hit that $25, you can request an episode, or as Paula has requested, uh, with her yearly content allotment, she said, keep the putovers coming. So we do it for Paula. That's why we're here. We're men of the people. And uh, what, what are we going to do with all this Patreon money? I, I don't know. Myros, do you know if bump stocks are illegal federally or just state by state? Uh, you know, this isn't really my, my wheelhouse, Steve, I got to say. I'm trying to say, Sean, weigh in on this. We're using all the Patreon money and, and we're going to get Adam Myros a gun. Do we go like tactical weekend warrior or should we get him like an old timey blunderbuss or what are you thinking? <laughs> uh, I like the blunderbuss suggestion. Okay. I like that too, because I'm just, I'm picturing him like loading it, but he does it wrong. And then it's kind of like an Elmer Fudd thing where it just blows up in his face and he's got like black powder all over his face. So uh, yeah, maybe maybe that's the direction we need to go in. Who knows? That isn't a bad idea. That way, 
when I do inevitably commit suicide, I can pass it off as uh, an accident. An accident, exactly. And uh, maybe and, get in those pearly gates. You yeah. Know? No, it, I wasn't suicide. I just loaded the <laughs> blunderbuss. <laughs> the sound, we're, now we're building the plot to a Claude Chabrol movie. Uh, anyways, yeah, Sean, thank you for uh, for bringing these wonderful movies to the podcast because Lord knows we've been doing some bullshit lately. Uh, and yeah, we'll be back for another episode. More Claude soon, ladies and gentlemen. You need more Claude in your life. We'll be back.